You know, I kind of worry about the reformist instinct in us, the incremental instinct in us to tweak a thing that there's not a lot of evidence works at a very elemental level, probation and parole, and, and suggest we at least try abolition. Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Justice Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Eighteen and a half billion dollars. That's how much a new estimate says is needed to make the promise of the Gideon decision a reality. Sixty years ago, with that decision, the Supreme Court guaranteed a lawyer to any poor person facing incarceration. But we've known for years public defense providers are critically overburdened. That multi-billion dollar shortfall is based on a new study of how much time per case defenders would need to provide adequate representation. It's been a half century since those workload standards were adjusted. When defenders can't even begin to keep up with their caseloads, what happens? Plea bargains. That's our justice system. 90 to 95 percent of cases end with the defendant agreeing to plead guilty, giving up their right to a trial. The incentive is pleading to a lesser charge, and often those plea bargains are leading to sentences of probation. The system gets to keep its hooks in you, but you get to avoid incarceration, at least for now. The use of probation has exploded in recent decades. There are almost four million people under some form of supervision in this country. Scholars have dubbed it mass supervision. Vincent Chiraldi used to run New York City's probation department. Today, he's asking whether probation and parole should exist at all. Far from an alternative to incarceration, he says supervision can be a conveyor belt back into it. Chiraldi's new book is Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. For our final episode on Gideon's 60th anniversary, I talked to Chiraldi about the failures of Gideon and the rise of supervision. Chiraldi is currently Maryland's Secretary of Juvenile Services, and I started by asking him if supervision has gone mass, why are so few people paying attention? Yeah, I'd think that for researchers, philanthropy, advocates, practitioners, it occupies this sort of nether world. They don't really know what to make of it. They don't feel great about it, but it might be an alternative to incarceration, so we don't want to kill it. And that's, there's historical precedent for that. When, whenever probation in the early years got criticized, it was usually by more conservative folks who wanted to lock those people up. And its defenders were the progressives, even though it was already being shown to do some not so great things to people. The progressives thought it was just better than incarceration without really examining whether it was truly an alternative or a net widener. Yeah. So we tend to think it's sort of like we're giving you this gift of you're avoiding incarceration, therefore sort of be happy with what you've got. And maybe that's bled into the sort of research and general public attention attention field too, it sounds like. Yeah. And I think also the times we hear about it, if you're not paying attention, you're hearing about this through the media. And often the times we're hearing about it through the media, it's because somebody really did get a break. They really didn't go to prison for something that you'd normally go for and they got probation instead, or they got out way earlier than they would have otherwise gotten out. 
that sort of lends a little credence to the notion that it's a true alternative to incarceration. You don't very often hear, and it's not easy to depict, somebody who the judge just gave probation to because the judge didn't know what else to do, but the judge was never sending that guy to jail. And so you've got this great quote from uh, Elie Wiesel about the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And essentially, we have become kind of indifferent to the harms of this system and and, and indifferent to what's uh, happening to the millions of people who are on supervision. Yeah. So I was an advocate uh, before I went into probation, uh, you know, ran a couple of nonprofits, the Center on Juvenile Criminal Justice, the Justice Policy Institute, and and for 25 years. And that's where I thought I'd spend my whole career. And before I went into government work, I thought a lot of stuff happened because of animus. We hate these people and we're going to do bad things to them. Once I went inside, I, I almost wonder if it's worse, but a lot of it was just lethargy, indifference, apathy. Inertia. Yep. Uh, this, I did this yesterday. I'm going to do this tomorrow. 20 years from now, I'll collect a pension. I feel like a lot of what happens with probation and parole is that. I don't really hate you, but I think it might work out if, if you stayed in the community, Matt. You tested positive for drugs. You missed a couple of appointments. What your original offense was wasn't that harmful. But now I got to weigh whether your liberty and my ability to pay my mortgage and send my kid to college, um, I think I'm going to bet on college and my kid, not your liberty. So you're going to go to prison or jail, not because I hate you or think you're dangerous, but because I am risk averse. Right. And then we don't even ask the question, is this, is this working? Is this, what, is this doing what we say it's supposed to be That's doing? right. It's just a kind of assumed thing. I'm, you know, I really do remember when I interviewed with Mayor Bloomberg to be probation commissioner. I had never worked in probation, never, certainly never run any smaller probation departments. And here I was interviewing to run one of the nation's largest. And after he got past my New York City bona fides, which he was pretty happy about that I grew up here in Greenpoint, I went to a local high school, I went to, you know, SUNY Binghamton for college, he almost couldn't look me in the eye when he said, so, uh, you know, what do you think about probation? And I kind of think that that moment describes what everybody thinks about probation, which is not much. Hmm. And that's what I said, not much. It's a, it's a sort of poor service given to poor people. Most politicians don't give a shit about it. By that point, Bloomberg had dropped the F-bomb several times, so I felt safe saying shit. And then we got, you know, we got into a, a brawl with me and him and his deputy mayors. What should we do about it? We should try this. We should try that. And I think that's what we should all be in now. We should be in a brawl about this. Uh, I almost, it's almost more important that we, that we debate it and that we pressure test it than whatever the particular solution is. Because I'm betting if you just sort of step back, which is what I encouraged the mayor to do, I said, imagine if I gave you $80 million, and he, of, of, of all people, could actually imagine that amount of money, and 30,000 troubled and troubling souls, which was the budget and caseload of New York City probation at the time, and said, do anything you want with this money to make the city safer and to help turn these people's lives around. I'm pretty sure what you wouldn't do is go out and hire a thousand civil service protected disinterested bureaucrats to have them piss in a cup once a week and tell them to go forth and sin no more. He said, nope, I probably wouldn't do that. And that's when the brawl broke out. We all started trying to figure out what you would do. That's where I think we should all be. Right. And you put them in this system structure where they're going to be very risk averse, right? And 
always worried about the one case that goes wrong and that, you know, and their butts hanging out on it. Yeah, it's not even just that because I know that the more dramatic stuff about probation and parole is the actual moment they get revoked. But a lot of people I've spoken to describe how torturous it is along the way where you have to go and sit in the Bronx waiting room waiting to see your PO. And sometimes that's a 15-minute wait. And sometimes that PO behind several layers of bureaucracy is in the middle of an emergency. So you're waiting two and a half hours. And meanwhile, and you can't go to your job during the whole of that. So now you're trying to sneak this in over lunch and you've got to make a decision somewhere around an hour, an hour and 15 minutes into it. Who am I pissing off today? Am I pissing off my PO who could send me to jail or am I pissing off my boss who could fire me? And there was story after story of that. I literally, within the first month of coming to work in New York City probation, I visited the Manhattan office, met a bunch of my POs. Somebody said, hey, why don't we go into court? Because I think there's a couple of probation cases being heard before Judge so-and-so. So in we go. And when we walk in, there's a woman convulsed in tears, asking the judge to revoke her probation and send her to Rikers Island because we won't let her bring her child to our her meetings with my PO into our office and... She's just run out of favors. She lives in Harlem. She's got to schlep all the way down to lower Manhattan. So that's an hour and a half just to start. And then who knows how long she's waiting, an hour or two hours to see that PO, hour and a half back. Now we're talking four or five hours. She doesn't have money for a babysitter. So she's running out of favors for who's going to take care of her four-year-old in the middle of a day. The judge totally believed her and did revoke her probation, gave her six months at Rikers, and then she was done with probation. She would rather serve time in Rikers. And I looked at some survey in the book where two-thirds of people in Texas prisons said they'd rather do a year in Texas prisons than 10 10 years on probation. Right. I mean, there's just so many conditions, right, associated with both probation and parole. And any one of them can be this tripwire to being incarcerated or or, or reincarcerated. And and maybe we should just pause for a minute and just do some definitions for people. We're going to be talking about community supervision, which is both probation and parole. Um, they've both, you know, mushroomed over recent decades in tandem with mass incarceration. But probation is much bigger than parole. So maybe we should just break that down briefly a little bit for people. Sure. So probation started in the 1840s, invented by a bootmaker in Boston who went in and bailed people out while they were facing time in their notorious house of corrections uh, and said, I'll work with this person, judge, I'll bring them back improved. And if they do, return the bail to me and let them go. And uh, that was the birth of probation, John Augustus. So it was an alternative at the front end. Parole is an alternative at the back end. If you play by the rules in jail or in prison mostly, and you participate in programs, you can get out early. But both of them are conditional releases, conditioned upon you behaving in the community. And then what's happened over time as the world turned more punitive is behaving in the community became dozens of conditions. Don't leave the county without permission. Don't stay out past dark. Don't associate with somebody else with a criminal record. Don't get a credit card without asking for permission. Don't go to Applebee's if they serve alcohol. Right. And so these conditions just piled on people. And as the nation became more punitive, the adherence to them became more and more strict. So in the past, really, you were working to rehabilitate a person. Did you really care how much they associated with their brother-in-law who had a felony record? 
not so much. Now I'm meeting guys that say, I can't, I can't go home. My mother's got a bedroom for me, but I'm in this homeless shelter because she's got a felony record and my PO won't let me go there. Or another guy who went to prison for marrying a woman with a felony conviction. And we have to ask ourselves, we either going to assume POs are just sadistic bastards, and surely there are some like that. But that is not the middle of the bell curve as far as I'm concerned. No, and we're not talking about individuals, right? We're right. talking about the structures. So then what makes a guy do that? Yeah. What makes a guy lock another guy up because he marries someone with a felony conviction, knowing, by the way, that at its peak, one out of 12 black men were on probation and one out of three black men have a felony conviction. So how's that one out of 12 not going to associate with that one out of three? You, you, you then have this situation now where what are called technical violations, right? Where you break the rules of uh, your probation or parole, which these rules are vastly different and lower than, say, what would apply in criminal law. You break one of those rules, you get a technical violation, and that's now, uh, for decades, that's been driving jail and prison populations, right? Yeah. So one out of every four people entering our highest in the world prison system enter not for a new crime, but for a technical non-criminal violation of probation or parole. Costs about three billion, almost three billion dollars a year. So I mean, it's clear from the book that you know you show there's very little evidence or research to support the idea that probation or parole is a real alternative to incarceration, or that it is you know helping with rehabilitation or treatment, or that it's strengthening public safety. It doesn't seem to be doing any of those things. There's a temptation to call it failed, a failed system, and yet I mean that sort of masks that it is doing what it is doing. It is serving a function. And I just wonder if you've grappled with that. Like, what, what is the actual function then of probation and parole? Yeah, I think the biggest function really, if you sort of step back and look at what what's the system think it's getting from this, I think that it's scary to do nothing when somebody breaks the law. Probation and parole are something. You didn't just get to walk out of court after you got accused of a crime and convicted of a crime. You didn't just get to walk out of prison. You did something bad enough to go to prison. You didn't just get to walk out of prison at the end of that a completely free man. It just makes us feel as if something is being done. The question is, what is that that's being done? Could we get that done in a different way? How much money are we willing to spend on that feeling if that feeling's not delivering on its promise? And its two promises are reduce incarceration, reduce crime. And I think I give ample evidence in the book that it does neither. So we're talking currently in the year, it's the 60th anniversary of the Gideon decision, you know, recognizing a, a poor person's right to a lawyer when they're facing incarceration. But I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the role that inadequate public defense has played in the explosion of probation and parole. And when I say inadequate, of course, I'm not talking about individual public defenders. Some are better than others, sure. But we're talking about the real structural problems that public defenders uh, face and the role that's played in, in the growth of supervision. I mean, first, maybe could we talk a little bit about the role that plea bargaining plays within the system, uh, historically, how that emerged, and, and then what, what, are, what are the implications of that? Sure. So... Just going, going back a little, right? So now we're talking late 1800s, early 1900s. Is this an explosion in immigrants move, you know, moving to the United States and people moving into cities from rural areas and, and black people traveling north from the south a little later on. And the cities are overwhelmed by this. 
People are working long hours in sweatshops. Kids are running the street. It's in these environments that we start to invent and expand a bunch of the things that we now know as regular stuff, right? So we start to invent juvenile institutions because these kids are running the street while their parents are working. Uh, we expand probation and parole dramatically. And we start plea bargaining like crazy because our courts have walloped with all of these cases of people that are flooding into them at a time when we really weren't running government the way we think of government now. We didn't have a lot of government apparatus to absorb all this stuff. So we start to build it there. So it's kind of an improvised response to this unexpected volume of cases. Massive volume of cases. I mean, the, the, the cities are tripling in size. Probation and parole are under heavy criticism at the time. So there were some states that had it, some states that didn't. And they're saying, why do we need this? It's not doing anything. So what keeps it from going away? Well, one thing that keeps it going away is that it is something, as I said before. Now you're in court. You can't possibly try all these cases if you're a judge or a prosecutor. Public defender's not, not going to give up or whoever the defense attorney is, who's pre-Gideon, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, is not going to just give up and let their client go to incarceration. So probation essentially becomes a grease skitter. It's greasing the wheels of justice by allowing a court to feel like they did something. They put, at least they put you on probation. Even if they couldn't jail you, prosecutor feels that's okay. Done. Next case. Right. And it's greasing the wheels. How? I mean, it's greasing the wheels to a plea bargain. To right? a plea bargain. Yeah. So now you can plead out to something. Defense attorney wasn't going to accept a plea to incarceration. Prosecutor wasn't going to accept a plea to nothing. Now we got something. And this is at a time when people were complaining that 50% of the cases were pled out. 50% today would be a joke. Nobody can achieve 50%. It's in the 90s, 95% of cases that are being pled out now. So, you know, I think especially if you're poor and you are subject to defense by an overwhelmed defender in a, in a poor county that gives very little, very little resources to its public defense office, you could see how this, this may be truly an alternative to incarceration. It may also be an, an alternative to acquittal. Right. And it's an alternative to due process, though. Certainly an alternative to due process. Too, right? I mean, public defenders stagger, you know, are you know, under these huge caseloads, right. are having to do a lot of quick plead outs. That's right. And probation is seen as something like, hey, it's better than incarceration, so we don't think about it too much. Right. Um, I mean... We'll never know the numbers, but lots of people will will plead to a probation sentence even if they know they didn't do what they're charged with, right? I mean, just to get the threat of incarceration removed. You know, I mean, in my 43 years in this field, I've met a ton of people and hung out with a ton of people who are formerly incarcerated. Almost every one of them says, oh, yeah, I definitely pled to stuff I didn't do. I also got away with stuff I did, but no question I pled to stuff I didn't do because it was better than the alternative, especially if you're incarcerated pre-trial. I mean... The Khalif Browder story is a stunning story for many, many reasons and a tragic one. One of the most interesting parts about it for somebody who's a wonk in this field is how tough this kid was. Yeah. He is in there getting beaten up by staff, getting beaten up in Rikers Island by other incarcerated people, literally going crazy in solitary confinement, and he refuses to plead out. Even though the judge in his case, Judge Domingo, offers him a plea to nothing. He could walk out. 
Not a lot of 16, 17, 18-year-olds would stay in Rikers Island if they could walk out. But he said, I am not pleading to this. I'm not guilty. Right. He wouldn't follow the template. He wouldn't follow the template. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this growth of plea bargaining. Probation is there to, um, you know, provide this like release in a way. I mean, so none of this was kind of intended, right? I mean, these are a series of sort of unforeseen events triggered in some part, in some ways by just the volume of cases entering the system. Yeah. And I think that part of what I saw in the book is how, and just in my experience, is how once that's all done, the prosecutor, defense attorney, judge, they've moved on now and the person's on probation for three years, five years, whatever it is, everybody else sort of forgets about them. And this is where you may be getting probation as an alternative to freedom or as an alternative to due process becomes especially sticky. Because once you're in it, then I can deprive you of your liberty for virtually nothing, for staying out past seven o'clock at night, for getting a credit card without permission, for associating for dating somebody with a felony record or having a beer with your buddies on the way home from work. Those are things for which people can and do get incarcerated with stunningly little due process. So you went from this moment where maybe you weren't grabbing all the due process you could, but at least you had the chance of getting acquitted or convicted beyond a reasonable doubt. Right Before, you, on, before you took the plea, you still had that chance. You still had those rights. Now you can be incarcerated for a non-crime without the right to counsel, without the right to remain silent, and without the right to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just a preponderance of evidence standard. And if you've ever sat in a courtroom or a parole hearing where that is the standard, you understand how quickly that devolves into a kangaroo court. Yeah, I was just talking actually to a former prosecutor who was talking about doing revocation hearings like when he first started out and how easy it was to get wins in those settings, you know, because the, the same due process law, laws you face in, in other forums just didn't apply. Sure. And also, how long it takes. I mean, on parole, they detain you while you're awaiting for this due process. Well, hell, sometimes you can actually say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I went out of the county without asking permission and get less time than you would get if you <laughs> exercise your full due process rights. So people have to do that math all the time. They got families at home. They're going to pay the rent. They might be able to go back out and get their job, pleading to one more technical violation. You know, they they got to do the math on how how much they care about that. So, in an effort to get people into what's considered a better disposition, probation, let's say, sometimes you sign away important due process rights that might later incarcerate them for a thing they wouldn't have been incarcerated. For in the first place, one researcher, Cecilia Klingel, out of the University of Wisconsin, called it a delayed form of incarceration, not an alternative to incarceration. You've constantly got this sword hanging over your head. Yep. You know, the gun of incarceration, I guess some people have called it. Yep. So, I mean, for public defenders, it seems like the solution would be dealing with their caseloads, right? That we've we've set up this system whereby they cannot adequately defend people when the, you know... I, Sometimes people refer to this, they're not doing justice, they're just doing triage. Um, and we had Keisha Hudson, the chief defender of Philadelphia, on our first episode in this series, talk about she has to have this hard conversation with new public defenders, which is, it's hard for them to hear when I tell them, you can't be effective. Yeah, this ain't Perry Mason. So yeah, that, and, right. and you can't be effective, meaning you are going to have to accept a lot of pleas and drive up probation, right? Yeah, and you know, my daughter works for 
Keisha. Uh, she's a public defender on homicides in Philadelphia. And, you know, I particularly have studied Philadelphia because that's where Meek Mill's came, uh, case came from, a famous musician who was violated on a technical violation a decade after he got on probation. And in Philadelphia, you know, sometimes between 40 and 50 percent of their jail population, again, is not in on a new crime. They're on probation and parole holds. They're just waiting to go to a revocation hearing. This is not a small bit of the system. There's twice as many people under supervision as are in prison and jail in America. And we got a lot of people in prison and jail in America. So it's 3.7 million people are under supervision and about a little less than 2 million are on, uh, in jail and prison. Yeah. And in some parts of the country, as you talk about in the book, like in Philadelphia, you have hugely more people you know, per capita on supervision, and it's a, and it's a very racialized concentration. Yeah. I mean, what, what happens to a neighborhood when this many young black men particularly are on probation, parole, uh, out on bail, out on supervised pretrial release, when, when the government has its hands in that many people? And again, I'm not saying my POs are bad people, but my goodness, you think about what we could do to, with some of these neighborhoods to help them achieve safety. If we could capture those resources and say, let's go to some of these hard-hit neighborhoods and put the kinds of resources into them that we will eventually spend on probation, parole, prison, and jail. And let's see, let's, let's study two neighborhoods side by side. You lock them up, folks. You have your way. We'll supervise the hell out of them and they step a toe out of line. We'll put them back in jail. And let's see what happens over there if we have a bunch of places like the Center for Justice Innovation and the Vera Institute and the Fortune Society and some community groups work it out and design what this neighborhood safety is going to be. I would put my money on the community groups over bureaucrats that I've supervised any day, including myself. Right. And then, I mean, public defenders too, and, and I think some of their clients know about this thing called the trial penalty, right. which is if you don't follow the template and you don't do what the system is placing every incentive in front of you to do and just plead out, take probation, um, if you force the system to put on a trial for you, they're going to punish you for that. Yeah. And it was, it's interesting. And I, I, I cite David Rothman's historical work quite a bit in the book. And they, he sort of takes you through the emergence of that where you simultaneously have judges being concerned about how little due process there is, you know, and how that's kind of being encroached upon. At the same time, they're saying, but of course, if somebody doesn't put the state to the burden of convicting them, I'm going to take that into account when I sentence them. It doesn't take long for defendants and defense attorneys to do that math and know they're much better off if they plead. So structurally inadequate public defense is playing an important role in this kind of uh, pernicious growth of probation and parole. If we start to look at some of your solutions right now, you, you know, you make the case that community supervision should at least be substantially downsized and, and efforts to make it less punitive. Um, but then you say, you know, looking at the long history of these kind of reformist efforts, that kind of effort is unlikely to succeed. And, and I wonder what's brought you to that conclusion. It's so easy for us to switch on our risk-averse muscle, and we're seeing it right now. It's a, a relatively sh short, by comparison to historical standards, 
uptick in crime post-pandemic and lots of indications that it's already starting to come down. But look at how quickly our elected officials started to amp up their punitive muscle. It feels like the default, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, I kind of worry about the reformist instinct in us, the incremental instinct in us to tweak a thing that there's not a lot of evidence works at a very elemental level, probation and parole, and, it, and, and suggest we at least try abolition. I was a expert on a case in Giles County, Tennessee, where there was a private probation company. People were being ordered onto private probation if they didn't pay fines and, you know, committed low-level crimes, misdemeanor, private misdemeanor probation. And the Civic Justice Corps uh, sued and said that these people are engaged in usurious behavior and they're usurping judges' powers, charging people inordinate amounts of money to be on private probation who couldn't originally pay a fine. And then those people are being incarcerated essentially for poverty. And we won. So now, Giles County, Tennessee has no misdemeanor probation. And I keep trying to find data, but I'm pretty sure most of the citizens of Giles County, Tennessee have no idea that misdemeanor probation disappeared. It's like Marty Horn, my predecessor at probation in New York City, who used to also run parole for New York State and ran corrections in um, Pennsylvania. So long resume. Marty said, if I took all the parole officers in New York out on a cruise for a month, would anybody know the difference? Because with the kind of money we're spending on parole, the answer damn well better be yes. I think the answer is no. I think the answer might be no. But I'm open. Study it. Study what we spent and make it a fair fight. Put that money into communities to provide support. See how it does. I mean, it seems like the studies are out there already that show like the lighter, the touch of supervision there is right down to just sort of having it be like a kiosk check-in. You get better results than um, and there's been experiments with intensive supervision and those haven't those right. haven't um, brought forth good results either, right? That's right. Both ends. The more intense the supervision is, the worse people do. The less intense the supervision is, people at least do no worse, maybe a little better. So, I mean, make your best case then for this strange beast you're calling incremental abolitionism, which you say, you know, many reformers are not going to like. Although to me, and I mean this in a good sense, it, I think they should like it. And it sounds really just like a more aggressive, on the more aggressive side of, of, of reform, but incremental abolitionism. It's either more aggressive incrementalism or less aggressive abolition. Sure. <laughs> it depends on your point of view. Uh, but yeah, I think that we should put our eyes on the prize and say, we think maybe this thing doesn't need to exist. But let's let's get there slowly. Let's let's chip away at it. Let's get rid of it for people on misdemeanor offenses and study it. Let's get rid of it for people with determinate sentences so that, you know, they don't get denied parole for lack of a parole officer being there when they come out. Let's carefully calculate how much that would cost and put it into the community, whether we take that from the Department of Corrections budget or just funded from the general fund, and then let's really study the hell out of it. So, so let's abolish pieces of the system, start with the lowest hanging stuff and work our way up, basically? You know, I've talked to some commissioners of, of corrections. They're like, yeah, we don't really get much for, for our parole dollars. When people come out on parole, it's very difficult to get my staff to help them 
and very easy for my staff to revoke them. So let's let's do away with that or let's do away with it for part of a state and the other part of the state stay as is and then compare, compare the results. Who should be afraid of that? Who thinks we're getting this much public safety and this much rehabilitation out of either probation or parole that they say we can't even study it? I think it's an idea worth experimenting and whether politicians will be courageous enough to experiment in it at this time, I don't know. Remember when I started writing this book three, four years ago, uh, things were different. The wind was at our backs. It might have been a more uh, viable option three, four years ago, 10 minutes after George Floyd was killed, for example. It might have been something that some courageous mayor or governor would do. But that time will come again. I've been around this long enough to know these these things happen in cycles, and uh, there'll come a time again when people are willing to to take a shot at this. So you've been doing this, as you said, for 43 years. You're very, you've worn a lot of hats, but you're very far from an armchair critic of this system. I mean, we've talked, it's come up already. You've ran the probation system in New York City. Uh, you had the immensely difficult job of uh, trying to deal with Rikers, but we're only given seven months to do it between the mayoral administrations of Bill de Blasio and Eric Adams. Um, you are now uh, secretary of the Maryland Department of Juvenile Services. Why is it important to you to keep jumping into the fray like this? For someone who's so critical of the system, it's got to be difficult to be running important pieces of it at different times. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I learned from coming inside is how much power people inside have that they just leave on the table. So when I was commissioner of probation in New York City, you know, I worked with my staff and we cut violations by 45% and we increased requests for early discharge sixfold. Uh, now, the judges had to grant those requests, but we still made them. And the judges granted them a whole bunch of times. Then we had the state research it. And guess what? The guys that got off earlier had lower recidivism rates than the people that stayed on for the full amount of time. So that also now gives me a platform to say maybe we should try something even more profound, not as a formerly incarcerated person or as a researcher, who we should listen to as well, but as a practitioner. And for some people, that has more meaning. Yeah, and, and you're back to working with in like juvenile work now, which is, I think, where you began as a practitioner. And there it just must feel particularly urgent when you see the harms that the system can cause. It's particularly urgent and, you know, we're starting to revisit some of the backlash that we saw during the super predator era. So none of us should be resting. If this 64-year-old can keep picking this fight, all you young folks listening to this should be picking this fight times 10. We, my generation, baby boomers, messed this up. Uh, we are leaving you a lousy hand, and I hope you do better than we did. Well, Vinny, thank you for the work that uh, you're doing with this regard, and, and congratulations on the book, which is just makes a great case. So thank you, and thank you for being here. Thanks a lot, Matt. Appreciate it. That was my conversation with Vincent Chiraldi. His new book is Mass Supervision, Probation, Parole, and the Illusion of Safety and Freedom. One quick clarification, that Tennessee lawsuit Chiraldi mentioned, it was brought by the Civil Rights Corps. For more info about today's episode, including a transcript, click the link in your show notes or go to innovatingjustice.org slash newthinking. Our thanks to Arnold Ventures for their support of this series 
and of all the Gideon at 60 work at the Center for Justice Innovation. My thanks as well to Fiona Doherty, Michelle Phelps, and Dylan Hare, and to my colleagues Lisa Vavanes, Alicia Hall, Michelle Carmen, and Elijah Michelle. Today's episode was edited and produced by me, and it was recorded by the Jacose Bill Harkins. Julian Adler is New Thinking's executive producer. Samia Amin Mia is our director of design. Emma Dayton is our VP of outreach. And our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Justice Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening.